Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. We're glad you're here. Uh, in this message series, it's a four-part series, we're looking at the, uh, the key elements that are often part of the process of an individual deciding to follow Jesus Christ. Now, our guide is the first four chapters in the book of John in the New Testament. And John is one of the four books in the Bible that are referred to as Gospels. And the word gospel means simply good news. So this good news, the good news about Jesus, does not become good news for us until we accept the offer that Jesus gives and we personally decide to follow him. But standing in between us and that offer, there, offer there's often a lot of obstacles. Now, if you've already decided to follow Christ, do you remember some of the obstacles that were holding you back? I mean, for me, I just had a lot of questions. I've always been someone with a lot of questions, and those questions became obstacles for me. And I would often ask the question that Nicodemus asked in John chapter 3, verse 9. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. And I would maybe read something in the Bible, or I would hear something about church life or something about what Christians do, and I would think, how can this be? I don't understand this. And this, this question, this how can this be question, points to the important process of sorting. Sorting occurs whenever we come across data that doesn't fit with the way we think things are. Now, we can't just ignore the new data. We need to figure out whether to accept it or reject it. And that process is called sorting, trying to figure out where does this fit, does it fit, or am I going to reject this? Now, Nicodemus and I share a common challenge when it comes to the matter of sorting faith. We are skeptics. Now, to be skeptical, Webster says, this is the definition of, of a skeptic, is uh, to be thoughtful, to look, or to consider. Now, those are all good things. And the truth is, we are all skeptical to some degree. And that's because, well, God gave us a brain, and his intention is that we would actually use that. And so we have to answer the how can this be question before we can believe something that is true and then take action on it. So what we're going to look at this morning is how do skeptics ever become believers? Forty-three years ago, the Viking 1 spacecraft captured an image on the surface of Mars that looked like a human face. So this is the image from the Viking 1 spacecraft. And as you look at it, that really does kind of look like a face. So as soon as this picture was published, the UFO believers claimed that this was the work of aliens who lived on Mars eons ago. Well, NASA had a different take. NASA said that's not the case. NASA claimed that the image was simply the result of light and shadows. And although it looks kind of like the silhouette of a human face, it's just light and shadows playing tricks on us. Now, you would think the debate would kind of go away, but actually the debate grew in intensity as the years went by. So much so that almost 20 years later, when a, another spacecraft was sent to Mars, uh, NASA directed the Mars Global Surveyor to actually go right back over this site. Now, that's un unusual. Usually you want to map a different part of Mars. But the debate had taken hold so much that they wanted this solved. And so they took another picture of this exact same spot with a lens that was 10 times more powerful. And this is the picture that they showed. This is what looked like a face earlier. And it now shows it that it actually is not a face. It's just a mesa with a bunch of erosion. So once again, the skeptics won the debate. But amazingly, the, belie the believers, the UFO believers, were undaunted by this. The UFO crowd claimed that NASA manipulated the photos to, you know, to fit their claim. 
Now, this is a, I tell you this because this is a kind of a typical irritation that skeptics have with believers. To skeptics, it often seems like believers don't really even care about the facts. They appear more attached to whatever they believe than any kind of commitment to the truth or what is real. In John chapter 3, we read a story of a skeptic named Nicodemus that asked Jesus some questions. And in this story, we find that there's a lot of important information about being a skeptic. The answers of this skeptic, in fact, lead to the clearest and best-known description of the gospel. It's John 3.16, the best-known verse in the Bible. Here's what it says, For God so loved the world, Jesus said, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And we see in this story in John chapter 3 that Jesus invites the questions of skeptics. And the reason is because there is something very important that a skeptic knows. But as we're going to look a little further, there's also something very important that skeptics don't know. And then lastly, we're going to look at what it is that skeptics need in order to make a decision of belief. So let's do some sorting. This is going to be fun. First of all, we begin with what a skeptic knows. Nicodemus meets with Jesus to ask some sorting questions. Now, Nicodemus was an intelligent man, and we know this in part because he was a Pharisee. Now, we tend to think of Pharisees primarily as hypocrites, and there were many who were in Jesus' day, but that's not all that was true of this group. In fact, it was the Pharisees who were responsible for most of the schools of the day. Most of the academic learning was done by the Pharisees. So in order to be a Pharisee, you had to be pretty intelligent. Not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, he was also a member of the Jewish ruling council. This was a group of 70 who governed Israel at the day under the power of Rome. So in today's terms, it would be kind of like Jesus meeting with a senator to answer the senator's questions about who he was. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus, we are told, at night to ask his questions. Why at night? Well, it could have been that this was the only available time in his schedule, but most likely it was because of the risk of being seen with Jesus. Nicodemus had obviously, to get to the position that he's in, he'd obviously learned the important lesson that every skeptic knows. That is that it's really dangerous to be fooled, to be deceived, to be deceived. If you get it wrong, especially about the important things of life, that can really hurt. You can pay a significant price. What every skeptic knows is this. They know the safety of reality. Every skeptic knows this, and they're exactly right. If you want to be safe, then you need to get your mind lined up with what is real. It doesn't matter what you believe. It matters what is real. Now, Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, and that meant two things for a first-century Jew. It meant, first of all, he was claiming to be God. It also meant that he was claiming to be the king of the Jews. And so as a member of the Jewish ruling council, if Jesus was in fact king, it would be critical for Nicodemus to get behind him in support. But if, on the other hand, Jesus was an imposter, he would have to oppose him. So getting this right, who Jesus was, was, was very important to Nicodemus. It had enormous stakes for him. We tend to not understand the, the danger of politics in most of the world and throughout most of history because we live in a, a time of freedom. 
where we can vote for who we want and it doesn't really cost us much. In fact, we vote and the next day, our days are pretty much about the same and usually not much changes. I mean, over time, things change, but you know, there's not a whole lot at stake when we vote. But for Nicodemus and the politics of the day, one mistake could cost you your life. So Nicodemus decided to play it safe and come at night. Now, we've all learned the skeptic's lesson. One of my early lessons occurred when I was 10. We were on a family camping trip, and my, we were setting up camp, and my uncle asked me to go to his car and look in the trunk and bring the skyhook back to him. I didn't know what a skyhook was, but I wasn't going to embarrass myself and say that in front of everyone. So I knew what a hook was, and I figured skyhook should look kind of like a hook. So I went and looked for one, and I couldn't find anything that looked like it. So I went back, and he gave me a little more instruction. I went and looked further. And when I came back for the second time, I was greeted with laughter from everyone around the campfire. And that's when I knew, oh, there's no such thing as a skyhook. That's a made-up thing. And I learned a very important lesson that day. I still remember that day. The lesson is this, don't believe what people tell you, especially if they're relatives. Be really cautious about whatever they tell you, because if you get it wrong, if you believe something wrong, it's going to at least be embarrassing, and it might really cost you more. Skeptics know this. They know the truth that your belief cannot alter reality. Whenever what you think in your mind runs into reality, reality always wins. And so it doesn't matter how much you want to believe something. It really matters what's true, what's real. It doesn't matter how much you want to believe in Jesus or conversely how much you don't want to believe in Jesus. The only safe place for anyone to live is in the middle of reality. But the question that a skeptic always faces is what happens is whenever they encounter something that doesn't fit with their current understanding of reality. That's what had happened to Nicodemus. Verse 2 of John 3, we read this. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. So what's the question that he's asking? What he's really saying is this. Jesus, you know, your miracles clearly indicate that you're the Messiah, that you're from God. Only God could have done what you've done already. But here's the problem I have. You're not anything like what the Messiah is supposed to be like. I mean, the Messiah is not supposed to come from a poor family like you did. They're not supposed to be as uninterested in political problems, the political problems of our nation, that in the way that you seem to be as uninterested. So what he's saying is this, Jesus, if you are in fact king, I'm having a hard time understanding what kind of kingdom you're in charge of. So the next statement in verse 3, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God. It's not the kingdom of Israel that he's king of, it's the kingdom of God. Unless he is born again. This is the first time this phrase is used. Well, now Nicodemus is even more confused. And what Jesus is really saying in this verse is, Nicodemus, you are now asking a question that's beyond your ability to figure out with your own eyes. And that's the problem that skeptics face. Skeptics would like to be able to figure out everything. They'd like to be able to see with their own eyes everything to verify what's real and what's not real. But what that means is that if you insist on only doing what you can see with your eyes, 
there's just a whole lot that as a skeptic you will never be able to do. And that brings us to the second point. What a skeptic doesn't know. The kingdom that Jesus was king of has an invisible side to it. It does show up on earth, but primarily it's invisible. Nicodemus could see the miracles that Jesus did, but he couldn't see the kingdom that he was king of. This is the challenge that skeptics have. If we can't see something, does that necessarily mean that it doesn't exist, that it's not real? No, not necessarily. It could be that it's not real, but it also could be because we're limited that we just can't see it. For example, I've never seen an electron. Nobody's ever seen an electron. They move too fast and they're too small. But does it exist? I believe it exists, even though I can't see it, because there's secondary evidence that points to its existence. And this is the challenge that skeptics always have. What a skeptic doesn't know is the size of reality. It turns out reality is bigger than what you can see and bigger than what you can prove. If reality was limited to what could be seen or what could be proven, then skepticism would be adequate. But we often venture far beyond the boundaries of proof. And that means that skepticism is not enough for us to be able to answer the big questions of life. Let me give you a couple examples. One place that we move that's beyond what a skeptic can prove or see is in the area of love. We are all drawn to love. But we can't see love. We can't ever be absolutely sure about its existence. We can feel what we think is love, but we are often deceived and fooled. But throughout history, we have been unwilling to live inside the skeptic's boundaries and refuse to love. Because it turns out it's the unseen things in life, the unprovable things in life, that really give life its meaning. And so the skeptic's world that demands proof, while it's a very safe world, is just too small of a world for us to live in. You know, there's never a completely rational reason to love, and yet we still do it. I mean, what proof, honestly, could there ever be for getting married or having kids? I mean, you can't see the future. You can't even see what's going to happen this afternoon. And yet both of those commitments require an obligation that's much bigger than this afternoon. It goes on for decades, maybe. But people keep standing up in public and saying things to each other like, I will be faithful to you as long as we both shall live. That's what I said. But let's be honest. What provable reason could there be for making a commitment that lasts longer than you've been alive to someone that you barely know? Now, I know when I got married and everyone that I've married, they, they are convinced that they really know this person. But we all realize later, I didn't really know that much. <laughs> now, sometimes that's really delightful and sometimes that's challenging. So no matter what our heart says, if we've lived very much, we realize 
Love is a risk. And yet people keep jumping off the marriage cliff. They just keep doing it. I mean, everyone knows that the failure rate is high. I mean, it's been around 50% for quite some time now. We know this data. This is why the love skeptics have sworn off marriage. This is increasing now in our culture. People are like, okay, well, because of the risk of marriage, I'm not going to get married. Maybe ever, or at least I'm going to wait a long, long time. But even though the love skeptics maybe have sworn off marriage, very few have sworn off love. And even those who don't get, don't get married, if you listen to them and watch what they do, they will still fall in love. They'll still jump off the love cliff. And they will end up declaring some kind of commitment that is far beyond anything that they have a proof basis for making. They will make financial obligations and they will, they will live together and do all kinds of things that actually it's less risk to get legally tied together than just kind of move in and get your finances all jumbled up. It's just completely irrational, both marriage and love. But people keep doing it. Why? Well, there's something going on that's beyond what a skeptic can see. The other thing that's true of the human experience is not only love, but worship. Everybody worships. Now, not necessarily in this form, but everybody throughout all of human history forms God-level attachments to something that they think is bigger than them. And they do this without any rational basis for doing it. It may be a career that they attach to. It may be a cause that they're attached to. It may be a possession. It may be a place. It could even be another person. And we do this largely not because of something that we've seen or the evidence for it. We do it largely because of how the object of our worship makes us feel. Not because we have any visible evidence that this thing is really worthy of worship. And you, you can see what it is that people worship. It's kind of like how you observe a black hole in space. You can't see the black hole, but you can see light bending around it because of the, the, the tremendous force of gravity that a black hole is. That's what worship is for people. You, you can't necessarily see what people worship, but if you watch them, you can see their lives and their resources and their time just bend around that thing like there's something big in the middle here that everything is swirling around. That's been true throughout all of human history. We love and we worship, and we have no visible and no provable reason to do so. So why do we love? Why do we worship? It's because there's more to reality than what we can see, than what we can prove with our eyes. The story goes on in John 3, 4 through 8. Nicodemus asked, how can a man be born when he's old? Remember, Jesus just said, you need to be born again. It's a reasonable question. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at me at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What's being said here? Well, Nicodemus is understandably confused by the born-again comment. 
So Jesus explains, he's not talking about another physical birth, he's talking about a different kind of birth. He's, he's presenting two kinds of birth. There's a physical birth that we all have to be alive, and then there is the spiritual birth. One is visible, the other is invisible. How can we know the presence of the spiritual? Well, the evidence, like for the electron, is secondary. It's not primary. You can't see it, but there's evidence that it exists. It's secondary evidence. The example Jesus gives is, he says, it's like the wind. The wind blows wherever you please. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it's coming from or where it's going. Why can't you tell where the wind's coming from? Because you can't see it. You can't look out there and say, hey, look at that big gust of wind coming this way. In about one minute, this tree is going to start moving. If you see trees at a distance moving, then you can see it. But you just can't see the wind. You don't know where it's coming from. And you can't say, look, it's moving over there now until it moves the trees and the leaves on the tree. So we can't see the wind, but we can hear its sound in the rustling of the leaves, and we can see it in the rustling of the leaves. Jesus says, so it's kind of the same thing with the Spirit. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Like the wind, we, we can't see the spiritual world. But we've all experienced the evidence of its presence and its power. One of the primary ways that we experience the spiritual world is whenever we try to do what is right. You know, we maybe know that we should maybe stop saying this or stop doing this. And we decide to turn around and do what is right. And we discover that it's harder than we thought to change. Why is this? Why can't we, as easy as it is to do the wrong thing, why can't we with equal effort do the right thing? Why is it so easy to do what's wrong and so hard to do what's right? Let me give you a, a wind example to explain this. I like to ride my bike on the, the river trails. I've done this for years, and my rides always start at the beach, which means that I'm riding with the wind on my back. And I know this is true done this for years, but without fail, at some point in my ride heading inland, I get fairly impressed with my strength. Now, I know the wind is at my back, but I still find myself thinking, huh, I'm, I'm still in pretty good shape. Maybe I, maybe I don't need to exercise that much because this, you know, this, is, this is pretty good. And then, of course, my own impression of myself has changed the moment I turn around. Now I discover I wasn't that amazing at all. In fact, I'm in trouble. And there have been times where God helped me get back to my car. I don't want to have to call my wife and say, I'm at this place on the trail. I don't know how you get here, but please find me. And the reason is because of the direction of the wind. We all have experienced this morally. We've all decided to change. And as we've turned around, we've discovered the power of the winds that were pushing us in this direction that we didn't really even know about. It turns out something more is going on than meets the eye. There appear to be spiritual forces that are work both inside of our hearts and then outside of us that are not only fine with us doing wrong, but actually push us in this direction and then really resist when we try to do what is right. 
Now this is not just an occasional experience. This is a common universal experience. It's as common as wind moving the trees. It doesn't just occur with a few random trees. It occurs with all of them. Why? Well, because the wind is real. If, if only every, you know, one out of every ten trees moved with the wind, then we wouldn't really know what to make of it. But because every time the wind blows on a tree, we can hear the sound and we can see the movement of the leaves, we know that it's real. This is true with us. Every single time we really try to change and do what is right, we find headwinds. Every single, this is universal across time and all of human history. Why? The spiritual world is also real. Now, what Jesus is saying in this born-again comment is he's saying that if you'll turn to me, if you decide to follow me, not only will you find forgiveness, kind of the innocence of a, of a new life, but you're going to be given a new power, a new wind. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to help us. Now, it's kind of like on the bike trail. I'm noticing more and more people with electric bikes, and it's just not fair. Here I am sweating and dying, and boom, some guy, he's like barely pedaling. Well, that's kind of like what it's like with the Holy Spirit. You need, still need to pedal. You can't just, mm, Holy Spirit, your way into change. You, you've got to do some stuff. But you get help. This is why Jesus said, you must be born again. Sin is just too strong. The spiritual world that opposes you doing the right thing is just too powerful. And so... If we insist on being skeptics and we demand visible proof before we will make any kind of commitment, we will never get any help and any involvement with the important parts of life. Our life will be too small. It will lack meaning and purpose. And this brings us to the last point, what a skeptic needs. The lesson of the skyhook for me is not don't ever trust anyone again. That's not a good lesson to take from that. The good lesson is use your brain first. If you don't know what a skyhook is, just say, I don't know what it is. Explain it to me. Use your brain. The lesson of a failed relationship is not to never love anyone again and never trust anyone ever again. No, the lesson is don't trust ever again until you've gathered a reasonable amount of evidence to do so. But it's still going to be a risk. The lesson of Nicodemus and the how can it be questions that he asked, the questions that we honestly all have about Jesus, is not to turn away from our faith questions, but to honestly look at all of the evidence that is presented for these questions and then step in the direction that the evidence points. But it's still a risk. If we demand absolute certainty, the certainty of proof, then we will never make the important commitments in life. For me, after two years of pursuing the questions that I had about faith, about the Bible, and about Jesus, I had found reasonable answers to the questions that I started with. The problem was I now had new questions. And I've discovered this is true of me. About the time I get one question answered, another one or two pop up. And I realized, I still remember the moment where I realized that I'm never going to know enough to be absolutely certain about 
Jesus, about faith. But then I had a second thought that turned to be life-changing for me. I can and I do know enough to make a decision. And that's what I did. I mean, when it comes to getting married, how many dates does it take to remove all doubt about that commitment? Well, that's impossible. I mean, if you're getting married and you don't have a little bit of cold feet, you're not very rational. But if you got enough evidence, then you can make a good decision. But it's still a risk. It's the same with Jesus. There is enough evidence to decide, but there will never be enough for there to be no doubt. So what a skeptic needs is this. A skeptic needs a reasoned faith. Those two go together. Reason and faith. Here's what Jesus says in verse 13 of John 3 through 15. He says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus states the problem that we all have when it comes to matters of faith. None of us have ever been to heaven. If we had, that would solve a lot of our doubts, wouldn't it? I mean, if we could just take a short visit to heaven, you know, I, just two minutes, I'd be good with just two minutes. I would never have another doubt about the existence of God and about what really, really matters here. But because I haven't seen it with my eyes, because I haven't been to heaven yet, there's moments where I struggle. There's moments where I get confused about what's really important, and I begin to think maybe I know better about what's important than what God says. The problem is we don't get a, we don't get a trip. We don't get a peek behind the curtain of heaven to see. But we're not left just to jump off a cliff. Instead, we've been given two kinds of evidence that come from heaven. We've been given eyewitness evidence, and we've been given circumstantial evidence from heaven. This is what Jesus is presenting here. Now, you may recognize these are the same two kinds of evidence that a court of law uses to reach a verdict. If you've ever been on a jury, you know this. If you're on a jury and you are charged with making a decision about whether the accused is guilty or innocent, you don't have the luxury of having been present at the scene of the crime. You weren't there. So how are you ever going to make a decision that will affect this person's life for maybe a long, long time? Well, you have to weigh the evidence that's presented, and then you have to decide. The evidence comes in these two forms. So in a sense, this is what God has done with us. He's impaneled us, kind of like jurors, individually, and we have to decide. But here's the key. Not just the evidence, we have to be impartial. This is one of the challenges when it comes to jurors. This is why lawyers take so much time before they impanel a jury. They know that if a member of the jury has some personal agenda or some issue from history that kind of taints their view of the, the crime, it doesn't really matter how much evidence they present. It's kind of like that black hole. It's just everything's going to kind of warp around that personal agenda, that thing that they really want or that they really think. And so if you're going to weigh the evidence, we have to work as best we can to be impartial. If there's something we want more than the truth, 
That's going to skew our decisions. So the eyewitness evidence comes mostly from Jesus. He is, after all, the one who came from heaven. How do we know that he came from heaven? I mean, anybody can say they came from heaven. Well, but you can't say he came from heaven and do what Jesus did. I mean, he, he's the only one that did that. No one can do the miracles that Jesus did. No one can raise from the dead with all of the eyewitness accounts that Jesus did. This is actually why Nicodemus was there. Remember what he said, Rabbi? We know. I know this. I've seen this. I know you're a teacher who has come from God. Why? I've seen it with my own eyes. No one could perform miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. Well, we can't see it with our eyes, but we can read the evidences of history, the eyewitness accounts. Now, the witness has to be credible. It's best if the witness is, is not the only witness. There are lots of witnesses to this. But while that is compelling, that's not the only kind of evidence that we are given. We are also given circumstantial evidence. What is circumstantial evidence? The, the premise behind circumstantial evidence is this. Circumstances don't just randomly happen. They have a cause. For example, fingerprints don't just randomly show up to crime scene. They are placed there by the owner of the finger. So if your fingerprints are found at a crime scene, you have some explaining to do. And the explanation can't be, well, you know, fingerprints, they just, you know, they kind of, sometimes they, you know, they float around and do stuff. No, they don't. They are attached to your fingers. And, if, and, and they're unique to you. So if you left fingerprints there, I need to know what you were doing there. That's circumstantial evidence. DNA doesn't just happen to match. Those are circumstantial pieces of evidence. So Jesus gives Nicodemus some circumstantial evidence. Here's what it is. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. What? Does that make sense as circumstantial evidence? How is this a fingerprint? Jesus is pointing to an event in, Israel his, in Israel's history that happened 1,500 years earlier. Poisonous snakes were killing the people at the time. So God told Moses to put a bronze snake on a pole and lift it up. Now that made no sense. I remember when I read this story early on when I was young, I thought, that is weird. And it is. It made no sense other than God told them that those who would look up in faith at that pole, he would spare them from death. The poison would stop. And it happened just as he said. So you read that story in the Old Testament portion of the Bible and you think, oh, okay, I don't know what that's about. And now Jesus says this. Seems like a weird and random story until Jesus hung on a cross and says that everyone who looks up at him in faith is saved from eternal death. Now some things are starting to connect. Now realize that Jesus said this to Nicodemus at least two years before he hung on a cross. Now you have to understand to us, Jesus hanging on a cross is just a matter of history. We know the story. We've heard it probably many times. 
But when Nicodemus saw Jesus hanging on the cross, it was something entirely different because someone like Jesus, the, the, the path from him to get to the cross was almost impossible. Moral rabbis and teachers were never hung on a cross. The only people that ever got on a cross were criminals. And so even Pilate, before the Jewish people were saying, no, this man has done nothing to deserve this. Even the power of Rome was saying, no, no, this, this, is, this is not appropriate. But the mob demanded it. So when Jesus said, I'm going to be lifted up, I'm going to be hanging on a cross, no one could have ever imagined how. That's, that's, that's improbable. That's never going to happen. Now, we don't know for sure what ended up happening with Nicodemus' sorting. We don't know for sure what he concluded. But we have some evidence that points to what probably is the fact that he decided to follow Jesus. He ends up being one of only two men who come to Pilate after Jesus is crucified and asks for the body of Jesus and then put him in this tomb and provide the expense for the burial and all of the, or not bombing, but the spices that went with it. Now, you have to remember, you have to realize he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. This took that nighttime visit to a whole other level in terms of risk. And that seems to indicate you wouldn't take that risk unless at some point you had decided that Jesus really was who he claimed to be and you decided to follow him. So, how did that happen? We don't know. So, allow me to guess. Again, this is my guess. We're not told. My guess is that Nicodemus, from this conversation in John 3, continued to observe, continued to listen, continued to sort. In fact, the only other time we hear of Nicodemus in the entire New Testament is when Jesus is on trial at one point, and it's clear that he's being railroaded, and Nicodemus is the only one, member of the Jewish ruling council, that asks a question that basically says, are, are we not going to consider the facts in the case? It looks like he's trying to defend Jesus. So here's what I think happened. I think Nicodemus, along with most of the people in Jerusalem that day, had gathered around that cross. And as Nicodemus, at some point, as he was looking up at Jesus, hanging on that cross, it must have clicked. And he remembered what Jesus said. And he, he must have thought, whoa. I, I could never have imagined that Jesus would ever end up on a cross, but he told me he would. And now he's hanging on a cross, and I'm looking up at him. I believe at that point Nicodemus said, all right, this just doesn't happen. This is not random happenstance. This kind of circumstance just can't occur. He told me what was going to happen, and now it's happening. Now, this is not the only piece of circumstantial evidence. In fact, I would say it's not even close to the best one. There are hundreds and hundreds of these kinds of things that are buried in the record of history and in the pages of the Bible. And if you weigh the evidence, the eyewitness evidence, the circumstantial evidence, it's compelling. 
God has dropped breadcrumb after breadcrumb after breadcrumb leading right to Jesus Christ. And in the end, when people stand before God and say something like, I had no idea who Jesus was, I, th I think the answer to the statement back is going to be, you obviously didn't care enough to even peek at the evidence. You had some other agenda going on that kept you from honestly looking. Because if anyone just, just begins to honestly look, it's compelling. So if you're skeptical, that's great. God gave you a brain. Use it. He gave it to protect you. Don't believe whatever you're told. And I'll just say this. Don't believe what I tell you. Check it out for yourself. Because if, if you make a commitment to Jesus Christ based on something I've said, and things get really tough, it's not going to matter what I said on some Sunday. You're going to have to have nailed this thing down for yourself. You're going to have to have evidence that says, I'm convinced. So check it out for yourself. Weigh the evidence. But again, my warning is do the best you can to get rid of the biases we all have and to be impartial. If there's something that you want most of all and you will not give that up, then you're not impartial. It's going to warp all of your reasoning. So weigh the evidence. Take the time to sort. But don't spend your life sorting. Because if John 3.16 is really true, if it's real, real, then nothing is more important than this decision. One of the challenges in life is people are just consumed with small little decisions of, well, what should I do in my career, and where shall I move, and what color of paint should I pick, and what do I, how do I want to get my car fixed? And all of these thousands of questions that need to be addressed just consume our mind, and we never address the most important question of all, which is, what have, what have I decided about Jesus? That's the most important question. So sort, but don't spend your life sorting. Look at the evidence, then make a decision. If it's yes, go for it. If it's no, don't mess with it. Make the decision. John 3.16, again, says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the mind that you've given us. You've given it to us for our protection. You've given it to us so that we can create uh, things of beauty and invent things that no other part of your wondrous creation can do. I pray that you would, if we are struggling with this and we're not really sure, I pray that you would, you would help us to think clearly about these. You'd show us where we're partial so that we might be able to try to set that aside and look at the evidence. And then I pray for all the people that we know that... Um, maybe are just consumed with all of the smaller questions on life that we get easily consumed with. And I pray that you would help us to be bridges of help and of words and of kindness to them that might be used to maybe help them point in the direction that gets some answers uh, to the questions they have. But God, we know that in this community, most people will spend their lives answering the small questions. And we pray that 
you would pour out your spirit on this community and you would lift up the eyes of many to answer and look at the big questions. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.